Good, everybody. Very excited um, to be back with you again. And uh, today we are going to continue with the same uh, the same notes that we used last week uh, because I definitely know we didn't really finish everything. Uh, we tried to. Let's just back up to the point of the question that we were asking, which is this: What is a covenant? That's kind of a seminal question, isn't it? I mean, when you're studying covenant theology, you should define what a covenant is. And we defined a covenant as a covenant is a formal relationship that is entered into through oaths, rituals, and commitments. There are all kinds of different um, definitions of of, of a covenant. Um, I told you that there are some, uh, like let's say O. Palmer Robertson, that would say that a, a covenant is actually a something like a, a, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, and, um, you know, a, a gracious bond of blood, sovereignly administered, or something like that. Other people have even a shorter definition, like Meredith Klein, oath-bound commitment, oath-bound commitment. Uh, I like that because it's so short, it's kind of easy to understand. And as a matter of fact, uh, one thing that we'll come to see, as Meredith Klein has actually taught, that um, uh, that kind of helps us understand what kind of covenant we're looking at. Meredith Klein has actually asserted that the way that you can tell what kind of covenant you're looking at is depending on who takes the oath in the covenant, which is interesting because he, what he would say is that that will define whether or not you're looking at a covenant of grace or a covenant of works. So... Um, we we will get into that because right now I'm throwing out terms that maybe we haven't even defined, we haven't even really gotten into uh, thus far. But when we're talking about what is a covenant, I just want to make a couple different arguments, which is this, is that I believe, my personal uh, opinion on this, is that the concept of a covenant originated with God and not with man. Uh, this is very important because... Uh, you know, you'll have opponents of covenant theology assert the argument that there is no covenant in the Bible prior to the Noahic covenant. And so until we see the actual word covenant in the Bible, uh, there's, there, there really is no covenant. Uh, however, uh, what we would dispute is that even though the word covenant is not used, yet the, 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 um, the features of a covenant are certainly present, let's say, in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, when God makes, I believe, a covenant with Adam, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, which is known as the covenant of works, because there you have the characteristics, all the parts of a covenant. You know, you have, you have, a, uh, you have parties that are involved. You have stipulations and conditions that are placed upon Adam. You have promises that are made to Adam. You have a commitment that Adam had to make in order to enter into that agreement. And at the end of the day, you have a relationship that results from that between God and man. I mean, all of those aspects of what you find in Genesis chapter 2 are covenantal in nature. They are part of formal covenants. And really, we know that because of other formal covenants, like we looked at last week, Genesis chapter 15. We saw there the ritual that was involved in the Abrahamic covenant. Same thing with uh, the covenant with Moses or the Mosaic covenant. By the way, does the Bible use the phrase the Mosaic covenant? No, it does not. What does it call it? Hmm? It calls it the Old Covenant. 
right? That's the phrase that's used throughout Hebrews. The old covenant is the technical title for the Mosaic covenant, right? And when you look at the Mosaic covenant, you see the same sort of characteristics of a covenant that you find, for example, in Genesis chapter 2. Um, so what I'm asserting is that the covenants originate with God, not with man. Uh, God did not use ancient uh, covenants that existed in the ancient Near Eastern world. So you're talking about really primitive world, real primal history. You're talking about the Noahic time and just right before Abraham. During that time span, what we're not saying is that covenantal agreements already existed, which they did, by the way, which they did. We have history that goes really back, as far back as we have human history, where we have the existence of covenantal agreements uh, in mankind. And so what we have to decide is, did God take a covenant idea from mankind? We would have to say pagan mankind, right? And then use that concept and then put that into his word, his revelation, and make that a feature, you know, uh, a main feature of his word and of the way that he works in the world. I would say, no, it's the opposite. God revealed the, the nature of a covenant to Adam. Adam revealed that to his descendants until we arrived at Noah. That's why when God made a covenant with Noah, he did not tell Noah, oh, by the way, Noah, this is what a covenant is. Noah already knew what a covenant was. So he, or, he, he already had an understanding, of, I would say a basic understanding, but he still had already an understanding of what a covenant was. So God had made a covenant with Noah uh, that stipulated various agreements and promises, and we'll get to that. Um, so what is a covenant? A covenant, uh, you know, is an important relationship that God makes with man, and I have all kinds of different points on that. But today... Um, I want to go a little bit further into, uh, if you look at your notes, not only what is a covenant, but also what is covenant theology. I just want to kind of give us a 10,000-foot view today of what covenant theology is. When we say covenant theology, what do we mean? What we mean is that God is supremely working through redemptive history, through the history of the Bible, in other words, uh, uh, mainly through covenantal arrangements. I would go so far as to say that God never does anything outside of a covenant. Uh, God never works outside of a covenant parameter. Uh, he didn't work outside of a covenant when he created the world. He didn't work outside of a covenant when he conceived of of, of, of the whole scope of redemption, because we believe in what's known as the plan of redemption. Well, the plan of redemption goes back to an earlier uh, eternal covenantal arrangement between the Godhead known as the covenant of redemption. So as we begin to talk about what is covenant theology, and then, uh, so what is, let's just add now, what is a covenant, and now just to cheat, what is covenant theology, okay? And I'm just going to go very quickly through these covenants. Number one, right, the covenant of redemption, Covenant of redemption is very important because what we find is that the covenant of, of, of redemption is actually foundational, right? It is foundational to all other covenants. What we would say is the covenant of redemption is the basis upon which all of the successive covenants of redemption come, especially when we're thinking about what's the next covenant? The covenant of works, and what's the next one? Uh, the covenant of grace. Now, let's stop there because we're already getting ahead of ourselves. But what we're saying is that 
the covenant of redemption was conceived in eternity prior to time, so it's a pre-temporal covenant. And it is not a covenant with man. Uh, It is actually a God-centered covenant because it is conceived of and it it is ratified between the members of the Godhead. Um, you have different scriptures that will attest to this covenant, and we will get into that. Uh, we're going to spend maybe two weeks just on the covenant of redemption, looking at that, okay? Any questions about the covenant of redemption, though, before we move on to the next one? Any questions about that covenant? Anyone? Yes, sir? It's foundational. In other words, what we're saying is that everything is built on this covenant. Yeah. It's, this gives birth if you would, to the successive covenant arrangements in the scriptures. Um, I definitely believe that. It is what theologians would call a fountal covenant. It's from it comes all of the decrees to covenant in all other ways. Yes, sir? Uh, would you say that the covenant of redemption is almost like the, um, you know, yeah, I guess fall, flow, 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 flowing from the idea that it's the fountainhead, that the idea of the covenant of works and the covenant of, covenant of grace are under the umbrella of God covenanting to redeem his people. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely because what is the what is the what is the essence of the covenant of redemption? Well, the essence is that the trinity for lack of a, you know, the trinity, the members of the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, had come together to make an agreement and what was the agreement about? What what was the stipulations of that agreement? Well, we could say it was redemption, right? It was redemption and it also agreed as to the, watch this now, as to the means, the objects, right? Um, we could even say, and the goal of redemption. That is what the covenant of redemption is about. So they agree as to how they're going to do it, who's going to do what, or excuse me, who, who they're going to save, who they're going to redeem, and what is the goal and what is the purpose. And I guess we could even say, right, um, that the means and, con- and the concept of what by what means is God going to a- accomplish this redemption, this gets into the agreement of the covenant, right? And so what you have is that the Father, right, and then the Son, and then the Spirit, uh, they all play a very important role in the covenant of redemption. Let me just give you one example of this, that that why this is important, how this affects your theology, is that when Jesus comes into the world, prominent in Jesus' life is the ministry of the Spirit, right? But how often do we think about that when Jesus came into the world, and let's say he was overshadowed at his incarnation, right, even in the womb of Mary, that he was, you know, uh, empowered at his baptism as the Spirit rested upon him, and the Spirit actually guided him, and I think it's Matthew chapter 4, it says the Spirit drove him out to the wilderness to be tempted. What is the Spirit do? Why is the Spirit doing all of that? Is that just random? Of course not. I would say that has to do with the Spirit's uh, role in redemption. This is, this is what the Spirit agreed to do in the covenant of redemption in eternity. He agreed to protect the Son, to empower the Son, to, um, you know, to send the Son into a time of testing in the wilderness. He agreed to raise the Son 
at the resurrection, right? Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he was raised according to the spirit of holiness. So he was, he was attending the Son all the way. And then what else does the Spirit agree to do in the covenant of redemption? Is that he agrees to perpetuate the ministry of the Son. That's why Jesus said the Spirit will come, the Spirit of truth, right? The comforter. And what does he say? He will take of mine and he will disclose it to you. See, these are all things that the Spirit is not doing haphazardly. He's doing it because this was a pactum salutis. This was part of the pact that the Trinity made with each other, the commitment that they made in order so that redemption would be accomplished and applied. Pardon the pun. That's a title of a book. Any questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, um, depending on the covenant, because every covenant is could be different. Every covenant has different aspects to it. You have conditional covenants. You have unconditional covenants. You have bilateral covenants. You have unilateral covenants. You have covenants where there's only one person who is committing and active, and you have covenants that both parties have to equally agree and 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 um, and commit to whatever the covenant is. So. So, so yeah, sometimes, um, you know, that, that, that just depends, you know what I mean? But, yeah, um, I don't think I would disagree with that. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, we can, we'll get into more and more and more of this. To me, it's just amazing because when you start actually seeing, like, with the Spirit, I think that's one aspect of the Spirit's uh, ministry in the covenant of redemption that really kind of goes unnoticed is that we forget that the work of the Spirit that we're studying is <laughs> not just for us to study the deity of the Spirit, Right? How many books are written to try to establish that the Spirit is the Spirit of God, that the Spirit is divine, or that there's a trinity, right? Or something like that. Or uh, the Spirit is used in order to prove, you know, I don't know, something personal or existential or, or charismatic or something like that, or whatever, right? And not that any of those things are wrong, but I'm saying is that we often fail to see the covenantal character of the Spirit of God in the Word of God and why He does what He does. Then it makes sense. So it's kind of struck me curious, why is Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? That's a curious phrase, <laughs> right? Wouldn't you think the Spirit would want to remove him from temptation? No, because he under- the Spirit understands that he is assisting this, the last Adam to mirror what Adam did in the garden by going through a period of probation, of testing, of trial. And of course, because he has the Spirit in fullness, Right? And without measure, Jesus passes probation. Unlike Adam, you know. But anyway, we can, we'll get to that. See, I'm stealing all my thunder. I was debating whether or not to do this little overview because it's really, um, you know, still, still my own thunder time. Yeah. What, what really blew my mind yesterday, considering the covenant of redemption, is the fact that there is an omniscient sovereignty in this. Mm-hmm. That all of this was known and seen. Mm-hmm. Completely, and that—that's where I saw the spirit carrying out in, in like a linear detail to our finiteness everything that had to be accomplished in perfection. You yeah, know, but that, that was known in that in that eternal pact. Yeah, what I'm saying is that, and I think still more research needs to be done on this because because when we talk about the goal, what is the goal of redemption? Well, the goal of redemption is for God, or the goal of the, 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 the covenant of redemption, the goal is for God and man to be in an eternal relationship with one another, which that eternal relationship, that sphere, that status of life, 
that mode of existence in Scripture is supremely identified with the Spirit. So much so that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 45, the Apostle Paul goes into this whole dichotomy of the earthly and the heavenly, right? And then he contrasts it with either being in the flesh or being in the Spirit. So it's almost like being in the Spirit is to be in the heavenly mode. It's really remarkable. I mean, we can get more and more into that. It's really mind-blowing. But these are the kind of things that they had stipulated to do. They had agreed to do. They had committed to do. I mean, obviously, you understand that in this agreement, the son agrees to die. So what is the, sim- what is the more common way that people have talked about this? Is that the father, re- the father, in a sense, he really is sort of like the, the fountain. It's kind of hard because our Trinitarian theology starts kicking in. And so we've got to be careful how we speak of this. But it's almost as if the Father is sort of like the, 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 the primary you know, causal agent in the redemptive process, in the covenantal process. And then the Son right, agrees to this scheme that the Father has, right, this plan, because in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, it's all about this, the work that the Father gave me to do. So the Father, in a sense, unleashes this sort of sovereign plan. You can also see it in what book? Um, talking about eternal, predestined, election, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 14, breaks it down very... So that's like the, the Father, in a sense, we can say even, uh, let's say he, he pre-determines... Deter- uh, Right, we can say he predestines the son. Yeah, the son. Yeah, election. But I'm trying to think of even more than that. He agrees to re, uh, to redeem. The spirit agrees to apply. Right, and that's the way that redemption really works. It's like the father is predestining, choosing, electing. The son is. Uh, redeeming, he is dying and rising again, he's accomplishing redemption for us, and then the Spirit is applying that redemption to us. These are all things that I would say they agreed to do prior to time, which is really kind of mind-blowing, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, okay, anybody want me to leave that up there? Yes, sir? I just want to make a Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good. That's a good point. That's the point that hyper Calvinists make, right? A hyper Calvinist would actually go that far to say that because we're chosen, um, then it follows that in some sense we are eternally justified, which we would say no, absolutely not. That does violence to the order salutis, the order of salvation. What we would say is, no, just because you are predestined, that doesn't mean that you don't undergo a literal uh, transfer of status, right? You do go through a transfer of status. You go from enmity to amnity, right? Um, and that's what the ordo is all about. So, so no, we can't, we can't. And then you get an exegetical problems and you start making that kind of a connection because the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that he was a child of wrath. Right, that he was 
you know, yeah, yeah, under God's wrath in a sense. Yes, sir. I think a great verse that supports what you're saying in the early Second Thessalonians, uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, uh, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren. He chose us from the beginning. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, what a great verse, you know what I mean? He has chosen us for salvation from the beginning, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Amen. So what about the next one here? Let's, let's move quickly so that we don't run out of time, as I always do. Uh, covenant of works. Real quick, let's just go there. Uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2. I heard this terrible analogy yes, last night. I was telling Trish, talking about it uh, on the way to church. It's about John Gerstner. I'm going to throw John Gerstner under the bus here for a second. But John Gerstner is R.C. Sproul's mentor, right? He said that he went and preached a series of lectures at a seminary, and his Bible was, for three days, he didn't even open his Bible. And then a student asked him, first question that came out was, uh, why haven't you opened your Bible? <laughs> you know, good question, right? And he told that young student, he said, son, I did my exegesis 40 years ago. Now we're doing theology. <laughs> I told Trish, that's funny, but I reject it. <laughs> you better open your Bible. <laughs> I don't want you to teach me anything about God if you're not going to open the Bible. Anyway, see what I mean? I just, I didn't mean to throw John Gerstner under the bus, but kind of have to to tell the story. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden and col- uh, to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Sounds a lot like you shall not murder, right? He says, <clears throat> For in the day that you, or any other commandment, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So, Number one, the covenant of works is important because Adam, who is the federal head of mankind, he represents all of humanity, right, is put into this interesting agreement by God and is, and is given uh, a direct uh, positive commission to cultivate and to keep the garden. And what's interesting about that is that that word, to cultivate it and to keep it, especially that Hebrew word there, to keep, it's the same word that's used in numbers for the priests who had to, in a sense, keep or guard the temple or the tabernacle. And so think about it. You're a, you're a young you know, priest in the priesthood, right? and you're living during the time of Moses, you go back and read the Pentateuch. You're reading the Pentateuch all the time, and you're, but you're reading it in Hebrew, right? And then you see there that the same word that God used with Adam is the same word that Moses is telling us to use, right? About the temple or about the tabernacle. So priestly, these priestly do. So that's why they would say that, you know, Adam had a priestly duty um, before God. And look at this. The Lord commanded him. And so God gave him a positive command, which implies what? That God gave Adam his law, right? Adam was a man under law, right? And so this is all adding to the law-like character or the works-like character of this original covenant with man. Um, And he says, then he gives us the 
I guess we could say even the stipulations, because remember, different features of a covenant is that there's an agreement, there are parties involved, there are stipulations that are made, there are sanctions. These are certainly sanctions right here, where he says, you know, from any tree of the garden, you may freely eat. So he allows the man to do this. These are the conditions. These are the stipulations of this covenant. And he says, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Um, so right there is a negative command telling man that he, he cannot break this command. And so when we are told not to break a command, what are we expected to do? We are expected to obey, right? We are expected to obey. And so Adam was expected to obey God, Um, which is really interesting because if you go a little bit further back, turn back in in, in chapter chapter 2, turn back to verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it seems as if the tree of life was in some sense near or present so that Adam understood that there was a tree of life here, right? Now, this is another, you have to kind of correlate this, but look over to chapter 3, verse 22. He says, Then behold, uh, then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take an also, also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So what is the, what is the implication there? That, that God is saying, oh, no, right? Adam cannot take of the tree of life because he is no longer qualified to eat the tree of life. He no longer has the right to eat of that tree. Why doesn't he have the right to eat of that tree? Because he broke the covenant, because he disobeyed. And because of his disobedience, God drove him out of the garden, right? Barring him, in fact, from the garden, showing that this is a forensic issue. He doesn't have the right, the the legal authority to eat of the tree of life. So this is where theologians, when we're talking about the covenant of works, okay, much of what is being said about the covenant of works is that Adam had a probation, right? And that the tree of life, okay, what is the tree of life? Uh, The tree of... uh, (laughs) The tree of life is, in a sense, a sacrament. Or we could even say sacramental. Why? Because, what is a sacrament? Anybody know? What does a sacrament do for you? It's a means of grace. That's right. It is a life-giving means of grace. Right? Uh, We have the means of grace... As Christians, we have the Lord's Supper, we have, we have baptism. These are a means of grace to our soul to impart the grace of God to us. And so what we're saying is the tree of life, in a sense, was the sacramental, even we could even say the sign, the sacramental sign or symbol of the covenant of works. And so uh, very important because the tree of life is going to reemerge again in Revelation 
chapter 2, Revelation chapter 22, the tree of life reemerges again. Only this time we are explicitly told that we have the authority, right? We have the exousia to eat the tree of life. Amazing, right? So it's like the Bible comes full circle, full circle. Right? Because we are justified in Christ, his perfect obedience is credited to our account. We have access back to the tree of life, which really shows you that uh, in Genesis chapter 1 to 3, it's all just kind of preparing us for um, eschatology and how the world uh, is really wired. It's really interesting. Any questions, though, about the covenant of works? Um, anything? Anybody? No dumb questions. Yeah. Yeah. Good. We don't know, but it seems as if he would have, right? And how do we know that? Well, number one, the tree of life is there. Number two, he had after the fall. He, he has access to the tree of life because God says, oh, no, you know, we don't want him to take of the tree of life. So obviously he had access to the tree of life and he was capable of eating from the tree of life. Right. So he would have eaten from the tree of life. So this is why theologians and putting it all together. And then when you see Revelation and what that says, right, we definitely come to the conclusion eventually after this time of obedience had Adam obeyed. God would have given him access to the tree of life, and that would have been a means of grace for what kind of life? Eternal life. I think it would have perpetuated his life forever, right? Whether, whether that tree, right, is really, which I don't think it is, I don't think the, the tree itself is what gave him eternal life. I think the positive righteousness of Christ gives him eternal life, right? The tree, again, is a sacramental sign. It would have been a symbol, the ultimate symbol that Adam was absolutely righteous if he would have taken that tree, the fruit of the tree of life, eaten it, and lived forever. And so if he would have passed probation, at some point, it's like the scaffolding of the present age would have fallen apart and given ways to the new heavens and the new earth. And Adam would have been ushered into the heavenly realm. Yes, ma'am. Well, Adam never took of the tree of life, right? Or before Eve took of it? I mean, she didn't take of it either. She partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? There's two trees that are, that are mainly pointed out. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's right here in chapter 2, right, where he says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Right? So there's a tree that had some capacity to... to, um, to there's two trees. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's okay. Right? There's one tree here. That's a tree. <laughs> this is the tree of oh, This is the tree of good and evil and this is the tree of life. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who, who, whoever said, that's a good, oh, I'm glad I drew this little uh, 
beautiful piece of artwork up here. That's a good question. What's wrong with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, 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 not my drawing. (laughs) It's anemic. It's like my tree in my front yard. Oh, no, it's a sign. What's wrong with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Nothing. There's nothing wrong with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just forbidden. God put a law on it, right? And so there's nothing wrong with the tree, <laughs> right? That's like making an image. What's wrong with an image of God? Is there anything inherently wrong with that? Yeah, what does the law say? You shall not. That's right. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with an image itself. Jesus is called the image of God. (laughs) Right? It says we are being transformed into the image of God. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with an image itself. There's nothing wrong with the tree of of good and evil. Is that God put a law forbidding you from partaking of it. Right? So that we could either be confirmed or be... um, uh, or failed the probationary period. Yes, sir. Uh, this, this is probably going to be that question. That's okay. Um, you mean of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We would never know. No. I don't know. Yeah, so when you see, like, you know, people drawing a, an apple, why is it open as an apple? Why do people assume it's an apple? It's red like sin? <laughs> Yes, sir. Was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden? Because verse 9 doesn't say so. It doesn't say it. The tree of life wasn't there. Uh-huh. Because in Genesis 3, um, verse 3, Eve mm-hmm. says it was in the middle of the midst, but that's not what God is saying yeah. in verse 9. And the NSVSC also in the midst of the tree. Yeah, so I, I think it could have been. I don't see why it wouldn't have been. Yeah, I think they're near each other. You know what I mean? I think Eve's got access in the garden to all the trees. Tree of life, knowledge of good and evil, all the other trees to eat, right? Uh, that's not the point is where is it at, you know? <laughs> the point is that, that God intentionally presented these trees. You know, some people call it tree theology because it's so, it's true. It's, I mean, the Bible is full of tree theology. It's amazing, right? Um I don't think that's the point. I think the point is more, um, you know, the whole issue is revolving around this forensic idea of, you know, um, of probation, of 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 the of the need for righteousness. So, so if 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 Adam was righteous, he should have had access to the tree of life. Was Adam righteous? Well, we're told he's good. Because he's part of creation, right? Um, but what, what theologians have concluded is that Adam, even though he was good, um, that does not mean that Adam was positively righteous in the sight of God. Adam was innocent, but he was not righteous. Uh, he was mutable because he could change, right? He can go, he can go from a state of in a sense, in a state of grace, in a state of being able to commune with God to a state of sin. 
So we know that he was yet perfected. So he was not apparently perfected. He was not glorified. He was not in a state of positive righteousness or else there would be no need to test him. You see? Yes, sir. I was going to ask about him being perfect. Well, Adam and Eve both being perfect. Right. Do you consider them having been perfect? I do. And I assume... Not spiritually perfect, no. No. Uh, I think they were, I think they were, again, they were innocent. They weren't sinful. They were mutable, right? Um, But because they did not have eschatological righteousness, right, through Jesus Christ, um, they, or either through Christ or through keeping the law, had they obeyed the covenant of works, see, how does one become righteous? That's a trick question almost. Because we can answer it in different ways, right? We can say, well, somebody becomes righteous through Christ. Hello? And you would not be wrong. But being justified by Christ is on the basis of what? His works. His merit. His righteousness. So are we saved by grace or works? Yes. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) We are saved by the works of Christ through faith in his perfect righteousness, right? Um, And why does Christ save us by his works, by his righteousness, his merit? Why does Christ save us by his works? I've already talked about it. Hint, hint. Huh? Oof, that's a controversial statement you just made. You, you wouldn't be wrong. I'll come back to I'm not letting you go, but. Why does Christ have to work? Right. Yeah, that's right. And I would say all owing to, in terms of Christ needing to fulfill um, works for us, It all goes back to the covenant of redemption. It doesn't go back to Genesis chapter 2. It goes further back than that, right? (laughs) Jesus did not tell the Father in John chapter 17 the work that you gave Adam to do. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He says the work that you gave me to do. So the the Father had given the Son a prerequisite that in order for redemption to be accomplished, he had to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew chapter, what, 3 verse 15, I think it is. Right? He had to fulfill all righteousness. And I believe that doesn't mean just the Mosaic law. I don't believe that means just, uh, uh, you know, succeeding where Adam failed. I believe it's accomplishing everything that the Father gave him to do, including the work of the cross. Everything. He had to do it all. Yes, sir. Right? Well, when I meant by objects, I mean those who he chose to save. The people he chose to save. Not the members of the covenant. Right. But still, those would be the parties of the covenant. You know what I mean? Who are the parties involved here? Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they each agree to do a certain amount of work. Right? Or they, they, they choose to play a certain role. The father, I mean, think about the father's role. The father 
conceives of this great redemption, right? And he also concedes to give his son, to sacrifice his son and send his son, right? Which is a huge commitment on the part of the father who had eternal glory with the son. And then the son agrees to go voluntarily, uh, voluntarily, uh, uh, vicariously, uh, right? As a sh- it's called the surety of the covenant. In other words, the surety means he does it in our place. He stands in for us, right? Um, and then the spirit agrees to empower Christ in his lowly state, <laughs> in his incarnate form as a servant, the Spirit is not agreeing to empower the king, the, the, somebody that's going to come and rule all the kingdoms of this world. No, the Spirit is empowering the one who rode in on a donkey. Amazing condescension that we're looking at here. So the covenant of works is very important, but the reason, and I'll come back to you because I don't let you go. Here's, the, here's why. Because the works principle of the covenant of works is still true today. But I don't, I don't think that Jesus is fulfilling the same covenant that Adam was put under, right? Uh, I, don't think he is, I don't think he's fulfilling those works, right? Because that covenant was broken. Uh, that covenant was set aside. No, Jesus is no longer put in the Garden of Eden, right? And told, don't eat you can eat this, but you can't eat that. That's not, but the principle of works is the same. Yeah, so that's a slight variation there. And so by extension, mm-hmm. at, that point, at that point you're talking about um, if, if he's not, if he's not uh, mending that which is broken in the covenant of, in the covenant of works made with Adam, then mm-hmm. um, by extension of that law broken, he is, in a sense, when we talk about the... Um, like his, his active obedience, yeah. fulfilling all the demands of every law yeah. ever given. Ever. Right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is the righteousness of God. Right. And so the righteousness of God is exactly what Jesus fulfills and, and, and obeys and, and gives to us, imputes to us. Yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. I was thinking out loud. Sure, sure. For 40 days, yeah. And he was tempted by Satan to eat something. Mm. Whereas Adam yeah. was tempted by Satan to eat something. Or Eve, yeah. Or, 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 sorry, yeah. Right? Or Eve was. Yeah. And they were there maybe a day. Yeah. Or, sure. Or it was quick. Days. Seems to be quick. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't so, this extended thing. In a sense, is it also to point out that Jesus, having not eaten for that period of time, would have yeah. been essentially more tempted mm-hmm. in, one, in one sense versus what Adam experienced yeah. probably just a week or a couple of days of yeah. um, maybe I, not eating at the most, I guess I would say. So does that, that point out even the of course. extent I, of what Jesus went through versus what Adam went through? And he still passed. Yeah, good point. I think there's clues regarding that very thing scattered throughout the Gospels. For example, Mark chapter 1 Mark chapter 1 is kind of a truncated version of the temptation and the other in the synoptics. But in Mark chapter 1, you do have this seemingly intentional description that should take us back to Eden in, in a contrast, right? To contrast it, to compare it. Exactly like you're saying, Chris, 
to show that what Christ did is even greater than what Adam did. He's not just the last Adam. He's greater than Adam, right? Just as he's greater than everybody else, he, he tip, typifies, right? So in verse 12, he says, immediately the Spirit uh, impelled him to go into the wilderness. This is Mark 1, 12, verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Wow, look at that. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. So you see that there? That he was not in an Edenic condition. The beasts in Eden were subject to Adam. <laughs> the beasts in the wilderness are hostile to Christ. You see, so he's in a much more hostile environment than Adam was. And yet he still, even then, he passes the temptation, right? So that he can go on to... Uh, live a perfect life and die a perfect death in our place, right? Uh, just remarkable. I mean, there's so many aspects to this. Last one, covenant of grace. Turn to Genesis chapter 3 very quickly. I've got I've to get this in there. And guess what? We didn't even get, we didn't even get to the rest of the notes. So next week, we... Um, we're going to have a new set of notes next week, but you may want to bring the last point on on of the, or you might just want to. You guys, anybody put it in a binder? Anybody that crazy? You did good, yeah. Staple them, put it in a binder if you want to keep bringing them back. Chances are we'll be hopping back and forth. Um, Genesis chapter three verse fifteen. This is where historically Reformed theologians have identified another covenant in the Bible, and this is because it's built on God's own oath and promise, where he says, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, that is a very germane promise. It's a small kernel of of a promise, but it proves in the Bible to be seminal. In other words, foundational. It it really does permeate uh, what comes after it. The concept of the seed, for example, that is introduced here, the seed of the woman, what ends up happening right after this is an exact anticipation of the seed. Look at verse 4. Chapter 4, I'm sorry. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, if you study any rigorous academic Hebrew commentary on that verse, they will tell you that the Hebrew language, the possibility here is that the Hebrew can be rendered, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. That is a literal translation of the Hebrew, and all the best commentators interact with that position. They usually side on, no, that's not the right, that's not the right translation, because it's too... Uh, you know, it's too Trinitarian. It's too Christological. It's, it's, you're, you're only, you want to take it that way because of what you know. You know what I mean? Okay, whatever. We'll settle for the more amb- ambiguous translation. That's fine. But look at what, what is Eve saying right here? I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Okay, why is that a big deal? <laughs> it's a big deal because she was promised a seed, right? She was promised someone who would crush the serpent. And I believe what you're seeing here in chapter 4, verse 1, I think you're seeing simultaneously 
you're seeing Eve in faith believing and trusting and hoping in the promises of God. And you're also seeing an anticipation of the seed. Now you trace that seed and what you get from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Genesis chapter uh, uh, 12, what you get is a, a, a now you get a sort of a, uh, like a, a comparison between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And you see that through the righteous seed of Seth and all of the rest of humanity, typified by Lamech, especially, chapter 5, right? Because of his song that he sings, it's very worldly, right, what he's boasting about, right? And so then you get these two camps that emerge, those that build a city, and that is spoken pejoratively, and then those who dwell in tents. Obviously, those are meant to be contrasted. Those that built a city means those that identify with this present evil age and have settled here, and then those that God called to be tent dwellers, pilgrims passing through. And who are they? They are those who dwell in tents, call on the name of the Lord, and build altars okay, to worship Yahweh. And then you get it, and this is the way that it goes, until you arrive at chapter 12 of Genesis, which we are introduced to who? Abraham. And Abraham is given another seed promise. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that's the gospel. (laughs) Right? That's it. Let's go to worship.